coming up. Readings beyond the raffle and Theoryland-approved conjecture. Deep dive into the spells and scrolls of nerd culture. Absorb stormlight. Hone sympathy. Harness Sayadar and Sayadeen. This is Phantology. You may have heard of us. What's up, Ents? This is Steven and Josh from Phantology, and we have Charles and Dylan from Friends Talking Fantasy here to talk with us about The Two Towers by J.R.R. Tolkien. You've probably heard of it before, second Lord of the Rings book. So we're excited to do this little collaboration. We try to do these about once a month or so, and I think Ben and Jake are going to go on and talk Emperor's Soul with Friends Talking Fantasy later this week as well. So we've got a little partnership going here. So what's up, everyone? How are we going? We we, uh, we excited to talk some Lord of the Rings? Absolutely. Steven, thank you so much for having us. Uh, yeah, I'm Charles, and I'm, I'm sure Dylan will pipe in to introduce himself as well. And uh, yeah, we're the friends over at Friends Talking Fantasy, and we're just happy to be here talking Lord of the Rings. Yeah, excited to have you guys on. Yeah, we're super pumped. I'm Dylan, by the way, to any listeners who have not tuned into the FDF podcast yet. And if you're watching on YouTube, apparently Dylan used to have a quarter of a Rothfuss beard or half of a <laughs> Rothfuss beard, and now it's shaved. That's that's the first thing I learned about Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing that happened was Charles said that I was looking good when we first hopped on this video chat. And I was assuming that Stephen and Josh just assumed that that's how Charles starts all of our Zoom sessions. <laughs> well, Dylan, I wasn't prepared. You know, we the last time we video chatted was last week, and you had the Rothfuss thing going, and now I see you, and you're all uh, you're all cleaned up. Yeah, I'll pop that on <laughs> for for the YouTube <laughs> viewers so they can see. I just threw my Rothfuss beard picture up <laughs> for any listeners. Just a few more years, and you would have had him, man. <laughs> yeah he had quite a head start i mean i had a pretty ungainly beard and i was amazed when i made this side-by-side shot where i was like i thought mine was long Rothfuss, that's just impressive guy's a legend yeah i love the white streaks that he's got going on it's just like so it's pretty regal i think yeah i was working my way toward that Rothfuss always uh twitch streams with a bunch of cereal boxes in the background, so that that's your next goal. Cheerios boxes, specifically. Yeah, it's going to take a while for the beard to get back to that length, let alone compete with <laughs> good old Rothfuss. But, you know, we all got to have goals in life. All right, let's get back on topic here. So let's talk some, uh, let's talk some Lord of the Rings. So the two towers. So, gosh, what's your guys' history with Lord of the Rings? Maybe that's a good way to, to talk about this. I read the series for the first time when I was younger, probably teenage years and obviously have watched the movies to death because they're fantastic and have recently reread them so i'll give myself like a two and a half reads of the series thus far are you guys mega fans casual fans appreciative of tolkien's work and in kind of the way that the typical fantasy fan is i'm sure somewhere along that vein sure so i can 
step in first, Dylan, and give us a quick overview. So I think our introduction to Lord of the Rings is pretty similar to a lot of people in our generation. I have a feeling we're all around that late 20s range, early 30s, and which is basically the movies were kind of our, our first um, introduction. Yes. I was definitely a bigger Lord of the Rings fan growing up than Dylan was. I'd, I've seen the movies countless times, and this would be my third read through of the series and you know Dylan and I have known each other since these movies came out and it actually took starting this podcast to get him to read he's on his first read through and I'm sure he'd be happy to share that with you (laughs) yeah Uh, I just never really got into Lord of the Rings as a kid I was a little bit late to fantasy in not even the movies no wow that's like yeah. not even like a fantasy thing. That's just a pop culture of the 2000s thing. Yeah, no kidding. Where were you in the 2000s? I was probably playing tennis. Uh, <laughs> Guys, imagine trying to start a fantasy podcast with a guy that had never read Lord of the Rings. <laughs> wow. That's that was my that was my situation until recently. <laughs> Do we need to be careful about end of series spoilers with you? Oh no. Like, so okay. I've read through all of it now, and I actually just reread Two Towers before this one, so I know what's going on. But I was very resistant to reading Lord of the Rings for whatever reason. I was worried the prose was going to be really archaic, so I read through tons of modern fantasy before getting back around Lord of the Rings. And Charles would subtly bring it up at times, never tried to really push it on me, because I think he was worried I, I wouldn't really like it that much and yeah finally doing the podcast i was like i i guess if i'm gonna be someone who podcasts about fantasy right. i have to read lord <laughs> of the rings <laughs> you will get destroyed on twitter if, if you <laughs> have not done that and you want to podcast about fantasy some might yeah. say that one of my reasons for starting the podcast was so that Dylan finally had no excuse to read the books. <laughs> I'm very I'm relieved now that he's finally read them. So Yeah, we do these friends pitching fantasy uh episodes where basically we pitch to each other what our next book that we're going to read and cover on the podcast is going to be. Nice. And Charles led with Lord of the Rings, Wheel of Time, and I forget what the third one was, but uh, yeah, he he kind of knew I had to put respect on the name Tolkien and pick Lord of the Rings, <laughs> so we got into it pretty quick. And I did the same thing to him. He he hadn't read Kingkiller Chronicle because Charles's thing is he doesn't like reading things that aren't finished, but the podcast has kind of helped him with that too. Nice. Okay, we should have some good perspectives here then. Hope so. <laughs> and Josh, I know you are a, you're a long time Lord of the Rings fan. Yeah. You read this in your early formative years. So my dad would read The Hobbit to us when, when we were kids. And then when I was like 10, I, I read through it, but I don't know how much I got out of it then. We had a massive tome with all three books combined. I'm holding my hands up <laughs> for listeners. But they had all three books in it. So I, I hauled that thing well, this was all bound together. Oh, uh-huh. that's cool. Yeah, it had all the books bound together. Yeah, so I lugged that thing around for a while. And then I read it again in college. And this is my third read through. The funny thing about that is all three of the books bound together 
I think the word count is somewhere around the range of like Way of Kings or one of those Stormlight novels. So it's yeah. funny how far things have come in terms of just like what can be published. I was shocked by how short they were when I picked them up because, yeah, I'd read Stormlight Archives and at that point, a few Malazan books and things like that that are super long. And in my head, Lord of the Rings was super long too. And then I looked at the books and I was like, we're not really. Whole thing is, yeah, what, 1,200, depending on what copies you have. I think it's because of the movies that are, you know, the director's cut, four-hour and five-hour movies, you know, that give it the name of, you think the books are going to be epically long as well. Yeah, those extended editions probably, yeah, that probably creates that reputation. Yeah, okay, so so let's get started here. So uh, before we do, let's just kind of introduce ourselves. I guess we have a little bit, but if you've listened to Phantology before, you know we try to cover the full breadth of the fantasy landscape. That means books from Stormlight Archive to we've covered a couple Malazan. We need to read more. We're sorry we are are working on that. We just finished off all of the Dresden reviews with Battleground, which came out just last week. And what else? Uh, we're working through some Mistborn reviews, Wheel of Time. Yeah, wh- whatever it is, we, we've probably at least heard of it and, and have plans to cover it. So if you like any of those things, check us out at www.phantologybooks.com. You can find us on social media at Phantology Books, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. And uh, we'd love to engage with you. Hop on our Discord. Oh, links to that Discord are on our episode invites and let us know what you like, what you don't like. Be gentle, maybe with these Lord of the Rings reviews. I don't think any of us are serious <laughs> Tolkien legendarium experts. So we're just kind of trying to cover this book and we may make some mistakes about the deeper lore, but I mean, feel free to explain that. I'd, I'd love to learn more. So if you know, then, then let us know. Yeah. When I listen to your, um, cover of the fellowship of the rings uh, i don't oh, want to probably miss anybody stuff. i don't want to out anybody but someone was saying uh the minds of morier <laughs> so i think we'll, yeah i think we'll be more on top of it today but yeah of course we're we're not we're not legendarium experts either so we you may have I noticed totally that that individual did not make his way back onto this <laughs> recording <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> And was I also, did I hear correctly that you guys were working on Malazan and Wheel of Time at the same time? Well, we, we've read, we've all read Wheel of Time before. And so we have a guy that uh, is not part of the core group that's going through a read through as well for his first time. So we're doing that with him. And then this is all of our first time reading through Malazan. Yeah, we kind of, there's five different members of Phantology and each of us have kind of read different things and so we try to uh you know play off each other's strengths as to who likes what and who knows what details that's awesome yeah that's cool so tell us about you guys tell us about friends talking fantasy sure we started just a few months ago actually uh it's just dylan and i and uh, we've known each other for a long time we grew up together down the street and only in the past handful of years around the time game of thrones was getting big did we discovered this common love of fantasies particularly modern fantasy and it it took us a while but we finally got to the point where we both sat down and dedicated some time to recording just to kind of read books together and discuss them and then we kind of 
try and find ways to come up with spoiler-free, no-reading-required episodes as well, so that anybody interested in fantasy would find a good place to to come and just hear us talk and have fun and and share our interest in in fantasy. That's yeah. tough to do. Tough to keep the spoilers out. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Most of our we're still episodes, figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, most of our episodes on books are just the full book discussion episodes where we've read the book and we hope that the people listening have also read the book. Yeah, I mean, our whole thing is basically that we're just two lifelong friends. Uh, bantering is the word we use yeah. about fantasy novels. We we usually don't take ourselves too seriously on the show. <laughs> nice. And if, if people want to engage with you guys and find you, where can they do that? Our website is theftfpodcast.com. They could find us at theftfpodcast on Instagram or technically Facebook, but I don't update that one that much. And and really, I recommend more than anything at theftfpodcast1 on Twitter is probably the best place to find us or interact with us. Nice. All right. Well, let's get let's get started. So the two towers. The, the book, kind of like you had alluded to, Charles, Tolkien originally wanted to publish these all together. He split them up into six different books eventually, and I don't know the entire history of the publication, so feel free to jump in and enlighten me if I make a mistake here. But The Two Towers consists of books three and four of the series, and then was combined probably over the years, etc. So interesting... I, I think it's interesting that essentially we have the narrative split in half, where book three is Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and Gandalf and co fighting these desperate battles with the Rohan folks. And then book four is Sam and Frodo and Gollum trudging around and trying to survive. So two very different uh, tones in the in the two halves of the book. And it's an interesting narrative decision not something that you usually see like modern fantasy is very much one chapter of this guy's viewpoint then over to this one and sometimes even the climax it's like one page and and just like rapid fire back and forth so this is very different so what did you make of this difference like is this a refreshing thing is this just like an archaic thing that we're glad we don't do anymore well, for me, it, it's so funny reading this now. A lot of the things that like Dylan and I have talked about in our read through, it's like we're comparing it to things that happen like 50 years later. So like, oh, this idea of having a parallel story structure is very much like how certain books in the Song of Ice and Fire are where you have two different groups of characters. And in one book, they go through the same period of time. So it's like, you're reading yeah, two that's a good separate comparison. books. They're going through that parallel moment in time. But because there's so many characters and their story plots don't intersect at all, they're told in completely separate books, which, you know, in, in this case, I think it was interesting. It definitely reads weird when it's combined into one book. But when you realize that they were supposed to be split into books three and four, like you said, it makes a lot of sense, and I appreciated it. You know, it's, it's classics, Tolkien, can't complain. Yeah, it reminded me as well as the Wheel of Time books, where you get like three books throughout the series that all happen kind of generally within the same time period. I don't know if it's the first book that did it, but you start to get a lot of those comparisons throughout most of the 90s fantasy books do that, in which I know Song of Ice and Fire is kind of in that category as well. I appreciate it, especially 
seeing it as something where you can move continuously through the chunk of story that's happening there. I feel like given how there's pretty much just two narratives going on rather than something like Song of Ice and Fire has so many things going on, it probably is best served by like, let's crank this out. Let's crank out the other part next. Probably the one downside is if you're much more interested in one of the storylines, then <laughs> the other part can feel a little bit like a slog. Yeah, it's just gone. Yeah, I was more interested uh, in Sam, Frodo, and Gollum than I am in what was going on with the rest of the crew. I don't know if that's different from most, but I did feel like the first half was a little like going uphill and the second half was like going downhill for me anyway. I think one thing about it is the fact that Frodo and Sam are absent from book three entirely just kind of puts them at center stage of the whole time because in the backdrop of everything that's happening with Rohan and, and the war there and Helm's Deep and everything, it's always like, well, we're fighting this, but we're fighting this so that Frodo can succeed and Frodo's gone. So it creates this whole sense of uncertainty and you're kind of there with the characters. And I think that is cool. That's an added benefit you get from this type of structure. That's a great point, Stephen. What, what I was going to say is you have a little bit of a what the story could have been with the movie, how the movie jumps between the two narratives, hitting mostly the same beats. Uh-huh. I know that there are some differences, especially with the way that the book ends and the way that the movie ends. But we we have that second telling style where where we get a jumping around and i think for a movie that works really well because it keeps you more engaged in all the plot lines and i think it would be really jarring if you were to do that in a movie but in the book where you have a little bit more time to sit with the characters i think it worked pretty well okay so do you guys know what the actual two towers are (laughs) i do no one else knows so it's interesting i actually did a deep dive on this we just released our Two Towers episode not too long ago. And okay. originally, like we said, Tolkien's plan was to have a book three and a book four. And, and book three was going to be called The Treason of Isengard. And book four was titled The Ring Goes East. But then he was like, OK, well, now I have to come up with a title. And I think his quote is that gets as near as possible to finding the, a title to cover the widely divergent books. And so he came up with the two towers, but then he complained there's like six different towers in the series. <laughs> yeah. But I can say according right? to yeah. like the Lord of the Rings Wikipedia, the two towers are um, you. So you have Isengard and then you have Critith Ungol, which is the tower where um, the ring wraith marches out with his army to, to, to march to Gondor. So those are the two towers. I believe. And I think I, I did some internet research as well, and he, he was kind of under some pressure to get this out, and he didn't really like the title, right? No. Probably yeah. because of the reasons we're talking about it. It's confusing. He didn't like the title for the third book either. I think there was a constant fight with the with the publishers and the editors and things. <laughs> <laughs> and the movie kind of makes it out to be, like, if you've only seen the movie, you think, okay, the two towers are Orthanc from Isengard and Baradur from... Mordor, right? Like those right. are the two towers. Yeah. That's kind of what the movie centers around. But that's actually not what he was going for. Exactly. It's right. close, but not exactly. 
that's what I had always thought until I had, you know, decided to do the research for my most recent read through. And I was like, I never considered that, but it makes sense, I suppose. <laughs> I always thought it was like the tower with the eye on it and then the tower, you know, Saruman and Sauron, you yeah, know, the, yeah. the two, yeah. the two yeah. big players that we're talking about here. So really quick, I just want to interject and say it's interesting because I've always pictured Lord of the Rings as being kind of like pure in a way. Like, I wouldn't think that it was wrapped up in publishing drama the way that, like, we were just talking yeah. about this at the beginning of the episode, you know, like, yeah. but who knows? What about in, you know, 40, 50, 60 years from now when crossing our fingers, we have all of, you know, the King Killer Chronicles are out, then everybody. Oh, gosh, hopefully not that long. <laughs> <laughs> just imagine how long Rothfuss beard will be by then. Don't know a lot of catching yeah. up to do. <laughs> But, you know, I don't know. It's just interesting because I never would consider that publishing issues with the publisher or drama with the publisher would have prevented him from having the title that he wanted. And this what has become arguably the most, you know, revered fantasy series that's right. ever been written. I also read there was like a paper shortage also, which was why he was pressured into combining books. So who knows? You know, it's interesting how certain short term things affect someone's legacy. <laughs> That's super interesting. I had no idea about it. pretty much any of that, except the two tower thing that you brought up on our <laughs> podcast. Wikipedia, man. As we talk about the book, I just kind of want to talk through the plot. So I've got some notes. I think we're all fairly familiar with the plot, at least you know from the movie. If you've only if you've only seen the movie, you probably know the plot. There are some differences in the book, and we can kind of get into those and talk about uh, some things that maybe we like more in the movie or more in the book or we think are more appropriate for the different mediums. But starting off here, so Boromir dies right at the beginning. And this is a difference right away from the movie because Boromir dies at the end of the first movie. He is still alive here and dies shortly afterwards after kind of confessing his, his treachery to Aragorn. And then our heroes, our man, Dwarf and Elf, go off to chase the orcs to find their hobbit friends so i thought this was a, a fun start although i do kind of wonder is this the best decision they could have made in light of all the events that are going on to chase after these two hobbits like i get that it's like a big theme of friendship etc but at the same time there's this war going on and i don't know it, example like if joe abercrombie was writing this <laughs> book then the hobbits are just dead we're not chasing after them yeah if Abercrombie was wearing this, you would have seen them eaten on page by the orcs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it makes me think of actually pretty much the first chapter of the blade itself is Logan Nine Fingers getting separated from his crew and just be like, okay, well, they're all dead. Yeah, What's next? True. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Stephen, that's very apt. <laughs> comparison point there where in lord of the rings it's like okay we all have to chase after these two pretty inconsequential parts of our crew because they're part of the fellowship but yeah it it is a stark contrast from some of the more grim dark or modern fantasy and lord of the rings is much more about these noble ideas and there are really strong themes here and this is one of them the the friendship and the camaraderie that our heroes that the fellowship shows to each other yeah, and I think Tolkien throughout the whole series does a good job of putting different sections of the Fellowship where they kind of strip everything down to it's just, it all comes down to their camaraderie. So my perspective from reading this moment was you have the trio, you have Legolas, Aragon, and Gimli, and they're like, well, the Fellowship has failed. Boromir just died. 
Frodo and Sam went rogue and we can't find them. And now Merry and Pippin have been taken and Gandalf is dead. So it's like we are basically lost. Like at this point, they've pretty much considered themselves to have failed. And so they're like, well, all we don't have many options. Right, exactly. So it's like there's not much we can do. We're all broken up. It's just the three of us now. And the only thing that we know we can do in this moment is cling on to the hope that Merry and Pippin are still alive and our priority should be to save them because they really didn't have anything else better to do in that moment anyway. And they still knew there was hope that they were alive. So for me, I always was kind of bought into that. And I thought that, you know, that idea of that camaraderie and that hope and faith in each other was always just one of the shining moments of Tolkien's writing in general. So I I was a fan. So so as you talk about kind of the the faith in each other and and that aspect, one way you see that is this alliance of you got a man and a dwarf and an elf. And as fans of the series, it shouldn't surprise us too much. Like, oh, yeah, you know, these guys are all buddies. They're our heroes. But if you actually look at it from a Middle Earth perspective, this is not something common. Like, this kind of alliance between the races is it's not exactly uh, what, what you would expect. And you kind of see this when the writers of Rohan show up and they're like, you guys are all together here. And then Aragorn at the same time should be like, oh, I'm excited to see these fellow men, but he's not. And and then if you compare this to the orcs who are just killing each other, even though they should, you know, they're all orcs. Uh, this is another way that Tolkien is really creating this idea of this alliance between the races that I think is one of the strongest themes of Lord of the Rings. We're going to talk about a lot of themes, I think, as we as we get into it. And this is one that stood up really well, and I think is especially relevant today with all of the, you know, all of the racial conflicts that are out there. Here we've got a man and dwarf and an elf, and they're all, they're they're fine together. They're our heroes. I also thought it was interesting that the writers of Rohan did not know what hobbits were. They thought they were like a <laughs> yeah. fairy tale myth. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. <laughs> The Ents didn't know either, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the Ents had an idea of like little folk or whatever, but didn't really know about Hobbits per se. Treebeard was like, I'm going to add you to the list. I yeah. gotcha. <laughs> yeah, the Hobbits are awesome because they have like literally zero special things about them, yet they are the heroes. And so as you read the story, you can kind of, you know, anyone can put themselves in the shoes of a Frodo and Sam fighting in a world against all kinds of opposition as we typically do. And that, again, is another great theme that Tolkien hits on and drives forward really well. 100%, Stephen. I actually had this thought on this most recent read-through. I was like, we kind of take hobbits for granted these days. Like They've existed since we've been born. But the idea of having a creature that's both so humble and so uh, like non-threatening while also being the most pivotal part of their plan to succeed is such an interesting dichotomy that was like a totally brilliant character creation for Tolkien. And just the idea that like, yeah, they have no power, they have no magic and they can't fight and they don't know how to get to Mordor, but this plan is completely useless without them. We need them. So that interesting balance is, mm-hmm. is um, one of the linchpins of the whole series. Yeah. Well, that's what, makes them special is that they lack any of these special powers that so many of the other creatures and beings in middle earth do have because it's like okay well by lacking that and lacking some of those i guess it's it's greed or some sort of ambition for power the hobbits are, are very very special in themselves and 
it's awesome to, I mean, have something like that that I think holds up so well, even now as characters, you can put yourself in the place of and really feel like you're on the journey. And I think you see this really well, too, when Gandalf, I believe this is Gandalf, correct me if I'm wrong here, but Gandalf is kind of explaining, okay, here's what Sauron is thinking and here's how we're going to succeed. And one of the things he says is Sauron cannot even conceive of the idea that we have the ring and we're not trying to use it. We're actually trying to destroy it and we're giving it to these hobbits. And these guys of no consequence at all are going to be the ones. And that is how we're going to win because Sauron will never suspect it in a million years. And then, you you know, going back to our point of like this idea of camaraderie and, and, and faith in each other. And it's just one of those things that Sauron just does not have. And he would have never thought that any character that wasn't super powerful would be able to challenge him. His whole thing was that he learned how to corrupt people that are powerful. And so that's how creatures like hobbits were able to slip by his his uh his gates there don't want to spoil the ending yet but uh you know that's um <laughs> the the weakness of sauron for sure and you can also kind of extend that to i guess we're just kind of jumping around here but we'll try to hit as many plot points as we can this is this is fine but we can extend this to saruman as well who maybe this is the time we compare saruman and gandalf a little bit and we can even make this comparison to the hobbits we were talking about earlier so saruman does have this huge desire for power and he is so arrogant that he believes that he will be able to do it maybe even better than sauron he'll be able to take control here be the new dark lord etc and he's obviously corrupted right away and he becomes this being of evil the part in the book where you hear the voice of saruman which is not included in the movie i thought was a brilliant inclusion and really kind of gets it how sinister and how far gone he has gone and so if you then compare that to hobbits like we were talking about earlier who have none of these ambitions for power i mean you do see the ring corrupt them a little bit by the end but at the same time like they are the only ones who can make it through these mighty wizards have have, have no chance it's a really cool thing to make characters that the <laughs> their lack I, I, it feels like something that is a little more modern almost to make characters strong by nature of of not having those powers i think with lord of the rings we start to yeah. think almost like oh this classic fantasy with all these overpowered characters and everyone's so heroic and amazing at everything it's like okay but the main characters if they if there are any are probably like frodo and sam and they don't have any of that well and in addition we see that that's not even a shoo-in for the win either because we see Gollum, who was basically Frodo, right, mm -hmm. get corrupted by it. So mm -hmm. it, we have an ongoing, you know, realization that this isn't like safe for Frodo and Sam. Like they could turn into Gollum, right? As you're reading this, for sure. Yeah, I think Frodo and Sam are very much us uh, as pathetic little humans trying to, you know, eke out our place in the world. And while, yes, we probably all have innate goodness in us, that is not a guarantee that we're going to make it through without falling to the corruption that is the ring or, you know, whatever you, you want to call it um, in, in the world that gets us. Very well yeah. said. And I appreciate that, that point that you made, Josh, uh, about 
Gollum kind of being this shadow following Frodo and Sam around, reminding them of how awry things can go for people like them. Yeah, and justified. It's always interesting to me how Gollum justifies himself at every turn. You know, it was his birthday. He was Uh on that, right? And then it slowly became that he, you know, was so dependent on it. And then he became the victim of everyone. And in his mind, he's justified his entire existence and his entire corruption was justified in his mind. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we don't have anything. I'm I'm sure we've never experienced that ourselves, right? Like, we've always done the right thing for the right reasons. Every single time, Stephen. That's what makes (laughs) Gollum so horrifying, though, right? And he is scary uh, in the book on page. You do have scary moments with Gollum, worrying that he's going to throttle them in their sleep and whatnot. But the really scary thing is, is that he is us corrupted, you know? To the nth degree, he is the cautionary tale. Even in the first book, when it's like, was that a a shadow or a log that floating down the river? It's like, oh no, that's mm-hmm. that's Gollum. He's been following us for a while. You know, we have to look out for him. No, I, I definitely think, in compared to the first book, now we're getting like we're getting to hear Gollum talk. We're having conversations with Gollum. For me, this Gollum was one of the shining moments of the Two Towers, specifically. Just, I, I could talk forever about Gollum in this book. Huge moment for him. <laughs> All right, we've gone way afield from our uh, planned <laughs> conversation to talk to the public. That, that's fine, though, I, I, as long as we, you know, uh, hit, hit on all these things eventually. But uh, going back over to where we were, so we're chasing the orcs. Now, this is going on for a bit. It's, just, it's a slower part where we get a lot of description of the, the countryside here. And then uh, as our heroes are following some tracks and they eventually meet up with with our writers of Rohan, we kind of talked about the distrust there. And then finally they meet up with Gandalf and Saruman is kind of haunting them a little bit and, and Gandalf comes back. So let's talk about Gandalf coming back. This is obviously a huge moment and it's, it's a total, you know, savior redeemer trope that uh, we see a lot in fantasy. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but I think it's done really well here. And Gandalf has now discarded his, his gray Nomaker. And he is the white and he is purified and he can pretty much do it all from here on out. (laughs) It's hard to imagine what this was like when the books were actually being published and people were reading these for the first time and being like, Gandalf is back and he's stronger than ever. (laughs) Like that must have been such a cool and interesting moment. It's, It's harder now to look back because there's this whole scene with the oh it's an old man oh is uh-huh. it Saruman uh oh Gimli might, yeah. might have to hit him with his axe and then yeah. it's like oh, big reveal it's Gandalf yeah. and I'm I was really trying on this read through to try to put myself in the perspective of someone who didn't know that was coming it was hard but I think that that had to be a pretty cool moment for people reading it when it was coming out after they kept saying, oh yeah, Gandalf's dead every time he was coming out. Yeah, we need to get an older guest of the show to tell us their perspective. Someone quite old at this point. Maybe Treebeard can come on. (laughs) (laughs) The podcast might go over if you have Treebeard on, time-wise that is. (laughs) I don't know, that would be some good ASMR. Just have Treebeard. (laughs) Start singing some songs and uh, that, yeah, that'll go on for a while. <laughs> One thing I thought interesting with Gandalf coming back, 
that I still don't quite understand is he comes back and he's like, oh, who am I here? Oh, I think I know you folks here. And then within like five minutes, he's come back to himself enough where he's able to lay out a detailed plan of exactly how they're going to attack Sauron. He's like, okay, let's go, guys. We're, we're Here we go. I'm Gandalf again. And so it's kind of this, like, why did there even need to be this misdirection? I guess it was just kind of to represent the the shift in his character. Yeah, I think they kind of stressed the idea that like Gandalf the Grey died and was reborn as Gandalf the White. For me, I never tried to think too hard about the uh, the the soft magic system that is the, the Lord of the Rings. Like, I know I could go into the Legendarium, but I, I've never bothered. For me, when I'm reading Tolkien, I'm just appreciating it on face value. And like you said, he, he does go from not recognizing anybody to calling all the shots and everything very quickly. And it services the story. So I was okay with it. I'm wondering, too, if some of it might be... Maybe this is me being probably the most noobish on Lord of the Rings in the virtual room here. But Gandalf goes by different names in different places, too. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. So maybe there's some of that going on, too. I I also was like, yeah, this this happened quick. (laughs) Is there a chance he's just messing with them? (laughs) (laughs) pippin's rubbing off on him (laughs) like pulls out a firework (laughs) yeah Yeah. and then and then he grabs shadow facts and they're off to to adores right the uh seat of rohan to save theoden before they do that let's talk about some ents so ents are they boring or are they cool uh, you, you've touched on a very sensitive nerve over at the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pro Treebeard. Dylan's kind of apathetic towards. <laughs> I have a little bit of a reputation over at the FDF Podcast for maybe being a little bit hasty, as Treebeard would say. That doesn't mesh particularly well with Treebeard, especially that the chapter that's titled Treebeard just feels like it goes on. I mean, it's supposed to feel this way, right? These are how the ends are. But it feels like it goes on forever, especially on my first read through. I was like, all right, all right, all right I get it. Like, uh, <laughs> I was Something to... I would love you guys, Josh and Steven, to weigh in on is when we were first talking about Two Towers, Dylan said that these moments with Treebeard harken him back to the Tom Bombadil moments of the Fellowship. And I well, was like, come on, wrong Treebeard opinion. is more proactive <laughs> than Tom Bombadil. Like, come on. Yeah, I'm ready for it. <laughs> well, first of all, I think growing up Treebeard was kind of a meme like you compared a lot of thing, things to Treebeard. i remember thinking that a teacher that talked slowly and was really boring was kind of like Treebeard, you know so i think it's kind of hard to separate it out from that but i do think that it adds a lot to the world to know that there are these kind of more forces of nature that are kind of anthropomorphic and i know that they're not like eternal beings but you get the little bit of a wider view that even these things that have been around for millennia or somebody's going to tell me I'm wrong for saying that, but have been around for a really long time are going to get involved and are going to go over to Isengard and, you know, take action. Gandalf certainly respects him, right? He's like, Oh, uh, you shouldn't mess with them. By the way, they're actually really powerful. Yeah. You know who else Gandalf respects Steven? Oh God. <laughs> Tom Bombadil. <laughs> Tom Bombadil is awesome too. That's, that's the other thing that that was that's one of my favorite parts of Fellowship is the are the Tom Bombadil chapters. 
I like Bombadil. I was probably more pro Bombadil than I was pro Treebeard. That's fair to say, right, Charles? Yeah, it's fair. I like Bombadil as kind of a treat you get by reading the book <laughs> and being like, what is going on here <laughs> when all you've seen before is the movie? So, Dylan, you didn't care about the loss of the Entwives. You know, on my second read through, that plight just really struck me, Stephen. And uh-huh. now I might go out looking for them. I'm just really, really worried about the situation because, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but it may be that that plot never got resolved. <laughs> I mean, who's to say, right? Sounds, uh, Dylan, it kind of sounds like you're still working on the, the journey before destination part of the ideal a little bit. <laughs> I say that all the time with uh, the King Killer Chronicle, and for some reason I have a little bit of a harder time applying that <laughs> to the Lord of the Rings sometimes. No, I, I did like it. I definitely liked it more on the second read-through. That part's uh, only semi-ingest. <laughs> like, once you kind of get a sense for what is going on and you're not just trying to read the Lord of the Rings so you can say, oh, hey, I read the Lord of the Rings now and they're not mm. going to take my fancy podcaster certificate away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you just try to enjoy it. it. I definitely did like the ends more this time around. I remember, so I, I watched the movies before I had read the books or maybe kind of simultaneously. But I remember as a kid watching this movie, there's the parts with Treebeard that are boring and slow. And then there's the parts of everyone else that are awesome and they're fighting these crazy wars against orcs. And so going into the books, that probably ruined me because it's hard to get away from that opinion when you've seen it on screen. However, in my most recent read through, I think I did connect with Treebird a little bit more. Like I, I was a little more kind of like you were saying, Dylan. I was a little more interested in the backstory. The Entwives actually maybe did strike a chord with me a little bit like I would like them to get them back a little bit uh so so I'm growing on Treebeard but I'm kind of with you the ends are a little boring but just a little bit I'm I'm sorry I hope I don't offend too many people (laughs) they'll come for me Steven don't worry (laughs) I always thought the I always thought the ends particularly Treebeard had a charm to them Uh, just their phrasing that for me, the two towers, how it shines compared to the other two books in this trilogy is that we have characters with very distinct voices. Like I think, you know, you guys mentioned that Tolkien is not exactly known for his dialogue or anything like that. But I think through characters like Treebeard and like Gollum, we start to see the diversity mm, yeah. in his writing for the first time because like men, elves, dwarves, wizards, they all kind of talk the same. And uh, but when you get this character, he's like, oh, um, don't be so hasty. It's, it's kind of charming in a way. And yeah, yeah. I've just always had a soft spot for, for the ends. You know, they're just trying to, to meet women. You know, I can relate to that. It's, <laughs> what's wrong with yeah, that? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I do think it's cool when they mobilize for war and they take down for Isengard. Sure. That is an awesome part. And it hits at another good theme, you know, which is Sauron, uh, Saruman disrespecting nature and not paying attention to the forces around him and, you know, just trusting in his own might and in the might of technology and, and weapons of war, etc. And these orc tools compared to Gandalf, who has made friends with everyone and is, you know, visits the hobbits every holiday season, etc. And then who wins in the end? Gandalf the White. And Saruman has been corrupted. And ultimately, that is his demise. It's not what you know, it's who you know, Stephen. It was a good way to personify nature versus industry. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, Gandalf has a lot of LinkedIn connections, I guess, is, is what we're concluding. Oh, yeah. It's definitely someone you want in your network. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so let's go over to Theoden. So our, our guy Theoden here is in uh, pretty dire straits. He's been corrupted by Saruman through Wormtongue. And Wormtongue is pretty analogous to Gollum, in my opinion, down to the fact that we leave him alive, kind of like the treatment that Gollum got. I think Gandalf coming in and you know throwing back his robe or maybe i'm just kind of thinking of the movie here but it's hard to separate this visual and healing theoden and all that That, that's awesome he comes into rohan i mean gandalf right away making whips absolutely i I thought you know this moment was an interesting one worm tongue again is another unique character and that he's kind of whispering into his ear very almost like a Macbeth style of of kind of corrupting the king by slowly uttering Mm -hmm charms into him making him more paranoid and and then of course it's Gandalf to the rescue and he's able to to take that moment to 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 win over Theoden and and round up the riders to to march to Helm's Deep I I definitely like you Stephen picture the movie scene so vividly in my in my brain of those moments very iconic so should we talk about Helm's Deep a little bit Helm's Deep probably like the single most awesome I mean, there's some pretty cool battle scenes in Game of Thrones that like have maybe surpassed it. But for years and years, Helm's Deep was the coolest battle that we'd ever seen on screen. I'm a little disappointed reading it. I'm sorry. I mean, it's just so fast and cursory and it's not the focus of Tolkien's writing that after you've seen the movie, I feel like this is ruined a little bit. Yeah, Stephen, I I, I think... Where Charles and I kind of landed when we were talking about this on our episode was it's pretty amazing to think that Peter Jackson saw or Peter Jackson and his crew saw what they made out of Helm's Deep in reading this because, I don't know, you're kind of above the battle a little bit more. And this is kind of how Tolkien writes, as as you were saying, Stephen, it's... uh, he he's not gonna give you the blow by blow or anything like that. He's just kind of if someone was telling you about a battle that happened, this is uh-huh. kind of what they'd say. And every once in a while, you get a little bit of a closer moment. And to think that Peter Jackson was like, "Oh no, we're gonna make this huge, gigantic, epic battle scene." I I mean, it's really amazing. So I was a little disappointed reading it too. It kind of just and it goes by pretty quick. How does Tolkien get away with this kind of telling, not showing at times? Because that's like the number one thing you hear from authors. Always show, don't tell. But here in Lord of the Rings, like it's it's a lot of telling, not necessarily showing. Something I've always kind of marveled is particularly now rereading it after reading so much modern fantasy. Because like you guys were saying in the beginning of it's surprisingly not that long of a series by word count. And just Tolkien's economy of words is incredible like the amount of story we're able to get and i and i think part of the trade-off of that is these big battle scenes he really is just conveying the stakes and the like epicness of it and he only really needs you know not that long to go into it and then he's on to the next thing he's not a really militaristic guy he's not a really like action guy so he he's putting you in that mind frame and then he's moving on and it feels like we're going through all of these things in his works but it, the, the word count that he's using it is really not that much especially when you compare him to modern authors the show thing too it's interesting what 
Tolkien decides to show rather than tell. It's not the battles, but he'll give you these really long landscape descriptions that are way more show than tell, especially in comparison to modern fantasy. You don't run into a lot of that. They'll set the scene and then they'll tell you what happens to the characters in it. I mean, I guess he he gets away with it in some ways just by being first and being such an early work and in some ways by i guess investing his show into other things and and i do think this series if you're super into world building i mean it's hard still super hard to try to compete with lord of the rings for world building and just those landscapes and feeling like you're traveling around the world yeah he's always got that as, as being the og and like you're saying he he chooses to show Different things, a lot of the landscapes, a lot of the world, a lot of the ideas as well. He's much more about these ideas of redemption and camaraderie and friendship and good versus evil. And those things are all done fantastically. The actual fighting, you know, it kind of serves to get those points across. But as far as the actual action, if you're looking for the blow by blow, there's other books that do that. Battleground. (laughs) Yeah. Are you guys Dresden fans at all? We've each only read the first book of Dresden, so we're we're pretty behind in that one. Sixteen, sixteen more to go to be. Current. Yeah, they're they're short though, compared to some of these other stuff yeah. that we read in the fantasy genre. At some point, Charles and I will definitely cover those on the on the show. The the most recent book was, and the entire book was a battle. It was it wow. was pretty great. Well, I heard he split what was supposed to be yeah, yeah. kind of the, the reverse Tolkien, as they call it. Uh, he, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> he took <laughs> he took one book right and had to split it in half because it was. Uh, I guess it wasn't working. I I don't know the details because I haven't read it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's four hundred pages of a battle, and for sake of spoilers, we're not going to say any more. But it's pretty awesome. I'm excited. I hear the series gets better as it moves along, too. But yes, let's uh, get back to the Lord of the Rings. That's an aside. Yeah, so book three ends with a weed summary of the end victory in Isengard. We hear the voice of Saruman, which uh, was a highlight for me. We get the Palantir coming down. Pippin looks at it and is whisked away by Gandalf. And this is the cliffhanger that we're kind of left with here. Wait, Mr. Treebeard hater, you just gloss over... The entire, you know, Ents coming in and wrecking Isengard. I said the I said the weed summary of the Ent victory. Okay, well, for those ahead, of you that Josh. haven't read it or watched the movies, the Ents come in and totally just wreck Isengard. Like they unleash the river, or they divert the river. How does that work out? Completely. I think flooded. they break down like, the dam, right? Yeah. Saruman had built the dam to power his engines and and you know build his orcs and his armies, and so yeah. they they took that down. They have an Elsa or an Anna moment from Frozen Two. They, 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 they rock it. That's and a good reference. Is... <laughs> Spoilers for those of us that have seen Frozen Two. Charles was just about to get around to it too. Yeah. Sorry, anyway, Charles. This was a highlight of the book for me, man. Like they, they pull this out, and I think that he did give this a little bit more description than he even gave Helm's Deep, and I really liked it. I thought it was great. Thank you, Josh. I, I think, unfortunately, the room is still split on the whole Treebeard Ents situation. I, I thought for sure Mr. we could Host close over the here, book. Just trying it, to 
But yeah, it's you and me, Josh. I, I, I'm agreeing yeah. with Josh here. This is one of the best scenes, especially in this book. When the when the ants storm Isengard and we know they break the dam, but also when the trio and Gandalf arrive and they're greeted by Merry and Pippin on the, on the and they're like, welcome to Isengard. <laughs> so have, a pipe. have some food, have some uh-huh, tobacco, uh-huh. make yourselves merry. And then they're like, are you kidding me? We thought you were dead. Yeah. We've been running for like a week straight trying to find you and you're here eating and drinking. It's crazy. And this was one of those few charming, cheeky moments of the whole series. One of my favorite scenes. It's an awesome moment. Yeah, and you you get the impression that Mary and Pippin did all that just so that they could have a proper meal and a proper smoke. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's why they convinced you know mobilized this ancient force against this incredible evil power so that they could get their get their bread in. Yeah, I also think they wanted to show off to Gandalf too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, those ants don't do solid food, so they're like, come on, you gotta get some of that man food. <laughs> They've been having ant wash the whole time. But Stephen, I thought you gave the ants uh, just the right amount of coverage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I will go on record saying I really like the ants taking down. I feel like I mentioned that before, too. So I, I feel like I'm getting an unfair time here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's book three. That, that's right for book three. And then going into book four, book four starts with some frustrated hobbits and frodo and sam are trying to kind of make their way along it's been a few days Gollum comes into the picture they have this whole argument over the rope i think frodo really does my man sam totally wrong over this rope thing like sam has coiled the rope and tied it around correctly and frodo gets upset at him for for not doing his knots right so these guys are kind of at at the at the end of their uh <laughs> their patience with each other and now we're going to add in Gollum At the end of their well. rope, Stephen. It was yeah, sitting right I know. there. I heard, <laughs> it was I heard right that there. Oh, no. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> I thought you intentionally avoided it. <laughs> so I thought you had to build this long lead up for this epic pun. So with Gollum, and I, I, it sounds like we have some thoughts about Gollum. So I love this quote, and I don't know. I don't have the exact quote written down. But Frodo is thinking back to what Gandalf said about Gollum. And Frodo says something like, well, doesn't Gollum deserve to die? Why is he still alive? And Gandalf says, responds to him and says, there are many that live that deserve death. Yes, but there are also a lot of people that have died that have deserved life. And can you give that to them? So therefore, should you not be so careful with who we decide to kill? And this is another great theme from Tolkien and keeping Gollum alive and also keeping Wormtongue alive, who throws the Palantir down and kind of sets things emotions that there you know both turned out to be the correct decision but at face value you might think like ah these guys are scumbags let's just kill them yeah and i always thought that quote because like the next scene after gandalf says that they just kill a ton of goblins and orcs <laughs> indiscriminately but um, <laughs> if they're not goblins and orcs then yes that's true you you, you don't want to yeah. just take lives willy-nilly and i and i think what's interesting about Gollum is that frodo's ba- doing this balancing act of like they treat him like he's in it, like an innocent, almost like an innocent animal, but he's also a calculating mischievous creature as well. So this, they're constantly juggling between, oh, we have to be sensitive around him. He's, he doesn't know any better. He, he's just, you know, this sad story. And also like, hey, we have to look out for him. He's, he's got it out for us, which always kind of keeps Frodo and Sam on, on their toes. It's an interesting dynamic where they need him and, 
they can't trust him, but they need him and vice versa. It, it, it's really what tr- keeps the tension going in, in this last book here. And we kind of talked about Frodo uh, at Gollum as the anti-Frodo and what he represents and all that earlier as well. And that really just adds to that tension as well. Yeah, I was going to say, I think Frodo is so defensive of of Gollum because he sees himself like as only a few steps removed. Right, right? The he knows how tale. close he is. Yeah. So I think that's why uh, Frodo is like, Sam, I know you love me, but I'm so close to becoming this and you hate this. You know what I mean? Right. And we have to believe that we can work with him and that there is good in him mm-hmm. because I need to believe that because this is, yeah, I'm only a few, I'm only a few centuries behind him in, <laughs> in terms of my corruption. <laughs> so what else do we need to talk about is, as the new fellowship of three journeys around here there, there's a lot of journeying they go through the dead marshes we hide from the yellow face we've got issues with food the whole time we are planning to get to the black gates is a total fail because it turns out it's hard to just like walk right into mordor and so then we get a new plan and then we're captured by faramir and we have oliphants like all this stuff's going on what's uh what's notable here if you ask sam definitely the oliphants yeah and the and the stewed rabbit <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, I think that it, it is kind of interesting. I don't know if we got to talk Oliphants in particular, but I do like all this stuff that Sam always has all these images in his head of adventure and what kind of things that he'd like to see. And I think he even has a line after he sees an Oliphant. He's like, I saw an Oliphant. What a life. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah. I love yeah. that from Sam because it comes from such humble beginnings and to think that, He's seeing all the. And there's some terrible, terrible things he has to go through. It's such a hard journey, but he gets these moments where it's like, "Wow, I mean, I could have lived a hundred years in the Shire, but I'd I'd never have seen an Oliphant. This is super <laughs> cool." <laughs> One random thing about Oliphants: Robert Jordan kind of does something similar with elephants. He calls them boar horses in the Wheel of Time, and there, there's a lot of like just small things like that between the two series that are really fun to pick up on. Dylan has yet to read Wheel of Time, so hopefully we can That's get him. That's the on other that. big one on my yeah. So <laughs> it's all the more trend. high fantasy stuff we gotta get him into. We'll get there. Yeah. That's that's the thing. Yeah. You can read along with the show. Yes. For looking sure. forward to that. So I just I just wanted to this the quote I'll just read it, but it's it's along the lines of what, what you were saying. It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger. Oh, yes. They were sometimes you didn't know. Sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when there's so much bad that had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Great quote, Josh. Even yeah. darkness must pass. Like Sam is just so wonderful, right? And you get this thing of Sam seeing his journey as this as a story right and kind of detaching himself from it and just saying i'm going to play my part in this story but it's so wonderful how he's able to cope with all the terrible things that happen by using that kind of like simple Mm -hmm. coping mechanism and he's it makes him 100 percent loyal to frodo because of it and correct me if I'm wrong, I want to say that this happens in the book is kind of they're like starting their journey up the Tower of the Moon. And in the in the movies, it kind of ends with a similar, it's not that quote exactly, but something similar as they're like walking 
out of Osgiliath, which is not a thing in the books at all, which I thought was a really good inclusion in the movies because it just kind of makes their journey a little more exciting that we needed to see that in the movie medium. Mm-hmm. I would agree. And I think they they run into all these different kinds of enemies as well. It's a nice uh, it's a nice difference between the books and the movies. So big enemy. We haven't talked about this towards the end of book four. Shelob, the big spider. So Frodo and Sam are able to hold their own pretty well until the very end when they're finally captured. Frodo is pretty much dead, but he's only nearly dead. And Sam kind of, you know, the, one of one of the few missteps that Sam makes here is leaving his master, you know, taking the ring. I mean, orcs were harrying him as well. So a lot of pressure here, but unfortunate that he did not maybe check his pulse or something. I, I don't know exactly what happened here. But the whole Shelob fight was was cool, and the giant evil spider is a fun enemy that we have seen other authors do. J.K. Rowling. <laughs> right. That's right. So I think Shelob was actually the reason why I read the books, because I saw the trailer for the third movie, and it had Shelob in it. It featured Shelob. And my sister, who's uh, 10 years older than me, was like, well... If you want to know what happens, just go read the books. And she was like, that happens in book two. You don't even have to read all three to figure out what happens with that. And so that's how I initially read them. Anyway, so I I, I like Shelob and it terrified me. Even just that trailer like terrified me. Big yeah. accomplishment for Shelob. Yeah, huge. Charles and I were saying that's one of the benefits for sure of the books is you get to actually understand what Shelob's deal is and how big a deal it is that Sam is able to fend off Shelob. Mm-hmm. In the movies, at least my memory of it, I haven't watched movies in a while, is just like, oh, big spider monster. Uh-oh, that's scary. And then kind of, yeah. you move on. But Shelob's this really mythical, almost She's older than figure. Sauron. She's been around for millennia. And Sauron is just kind of like, well, I'll just kind of leave you here. Don't want to mess with you. You guard this pass. And she's also one of the few female characters in the books. They they really kind of point out the fact that this is a female spider that is causing all these problems. Right. And they do mention that like this is the first time in its mortal life it was ever wounded or something like that. So you, uh-huh. you can only imagine a character that's been around since the dawn of time. Once it runs into sand, then it's all over. Yeah, so it's it's definitely you get that sense of how much how far Sam has come, and how much he's accomplished in the series when you compare it to something like the movies, where it's like he fought off a spider. That's very impressive and cool, but it's like he fought off the spider. So big difference. <laughs> capital spider, yeah. capital S spider. That's right. And then the book ends. Book four ends with Sam putting on the ring. And having to face this choice here of is he going to continue to just take the ring to destroy it? Is he going to try to save Frodo? What's going to happen here? And this is, again, a nice cliffhanger. And I can imagine the two towers coming out and being pumped to figure out how this is going to end with Return of the King back in the 50s. For sure. A huge cliffhanger here. And and for a while, you're like, oh, man, Frodo is dead. And ring is like all Sam is alone and the orcs have Frodo now and he's actually alive. It's like all these twists and turns right at the end. You, uh-huh. you finish that book and you're like, I can't imagine someone reading that for the first time. It's like, well, now I have to wait a year to see how this series ends. You know, it, it's crazy to think <laughs> that there was a time that that was 
a thing. And it's just a great cliffhanger ending, very much like some of the great movie trilogies of all time. Things like um, Star Wars has something like that. Marvel does things like that, where there's that middle act that's uh, ends in despair. And I think that all. Yep. It's hard to say it was inspired yep. from Lord of the Rings, but it's that great way of storytelling of putting us in that like man, stakes are have never been higher. And this series, this is crazy. It's too bad there weren't podcasts back in the <laughs> 50s. I mean, <laughs> our grandparents would have been going off with Return of the King theory. So much speculation. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's going to go down next. <laughs> is, is Sam going to be the ring bearer from here on out? Like, <laughs> right. So many episodes on that. So much potential good content. Nice. So, so that kind of takes us through the book. And in the interest of time, we're going to go into our final segment. In a lot of these longer series, we like to do a top three and bottom three character rankings for who did the best in this book. And that's kind of fun because then you can look back and see how things have changed from book to book. So let's try to each you know, keep it short. You know, you can give a little justification for your choices, but Let's start with our top three. So we're just talking Two Towers. Who was a really standout performance in this book? Doesn't have to be someone you liked necessarily. It's more like who performed the best. So if you want to choose someone evil, like that, that's fine. We're not going to judge you and think that you yourself are evil too. <laughs> All right, I'll go first, Stephen. All right, Josh, take us away. All right. So number three, I'm going to say Faramir. Because first of all, we didn't talk about him. And I was kind of sad that we that we went past that. I think he does. He has such a good foil for Boromir. Like he had the ring, he knew it was there. He like could have taken it, but he didn't. And in addition to that, he showed compassion to Gollum, even if it was at Frodo's request. And he showed a lot of trust in in Frodo with that. I like it. Then the next one, Stephen, I'm going to go with the Ents because they rocked it. Man of my own heart here. Josh. <laughs> yeah. And then my top performers of all time in the two towers, I'm going to say are Mary and Pippin. These guys. Really? Oh, they, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Man. These guys, they get out of the orcs. They get out. Like they, they manage to escape. Then they manage to go convince the ants to go destroy Isengard. And then. Yeah. They rolled pretty well for diplomacy on that one. Yeah. And then even in their mistake, they were still able to, uh, was it Pippin that looked into the plant? Yes. The, yep. Palantir. Yeah. yeah. Like, even though that was like, that was a pretty big fail on his part. First of all, like it was a fail on Gandalf's part too for not no kidding, prepping Gandalf. Them. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, come on. Like say, Hey, don't look at this thing, guys. Like this is not, this is not a good thing to do classic wizard miscommunication because he's just yeah too high and mighty can't explain everything yeah i'm not holding that against them because that was on gandalf not on them and he was still able to like not even he was strong enough to not even let them know where they were at let Sauron know where they were at so i'm saying marion pippin top performers i like it all right charles and dylan which one of you guys wants to go next i went with Sam's got to be in the list. I mean, he had such oh, a certainly. triumphant. I, I think you could put him even up to one with just, I mean, the Shelob situation. That's that's pretty awesome from that's Sam. Fair. But that's fair. I did put him three, actually. Uh, but uh, I think all these could be mixed up. 
I, I put Faramir as well at two. Josh, I I really like Faramir in this. I feel like in the movies, I saw him as just worse Boromir, basically. I mean... <laughs> yeah, Boromir it, light version. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not worse. Obviously, there's things Boromir didn't do so great, but it's like he just seems like a lesser version of Boromir in a lot of ways in the movies. But in the books, he's just like comes off very measured he seems like a really good dude and just very noble in ways that Boromir wasn't able to be uh so yeah uh, Faramir's two and I actually put Gollum number one and uh you know oh, Gollum, okay. I don't know if we're talking performance he doesn't do anything that great per se but just he's really entertaining and really well written in the books I, I just really enjoy his presence uh and what an interesting morally gray character to have. He had a pretty it's good a, plan too. Yeah. I mean, the the whole Shelob plan succeeded. He got a lot of fish as well. So, if we're talking <laughs> yeah. performance, best fisherman. <laughs> okay. Well, Dylan, our list was pretty much exactly the same. Um, my number three spot, I wrote Sam slash because I knew I, I was sure Sam was going to pop up on everyone's list. I decided to instead put Treebeard. And that's only because I just think he's a really charming character. He's one of those few who, when he's talking, it it comes alive off the page for me. Like you hear all these, like the Counts of Elrond, everyone's just talking, talking. They're they're practically not even listening to each other when they talk. And then you have Treebeard, who just kind of disrupts the flow of conversation that we've been used to up to this moment. And he's just so charming and. The fact that he goes from that ho-hum, don't be so hasty, to charging into battle is a really great thing. So Treebeard at number three. Number two, Faramir. I think Faramir really shines in this book. Uh, Just that whole scene where they're at the Forbidden Pool is great. That really interesting conversation between Frodo and Faramir where they're trying to size each other up. They don't know who's on whose side, and they also don't want to give away any information. So they're very deftly like exchanging words, trying to figure out, you know, what their interest is. You know, Frodo's trying to protect the secret of the ring, and Faramir's trying to make sure that they're not agents of evil or that they portrayed Boromir or something like that. So it was a very interesting mm-hmm. dynamic in that moment, and one of the best exchange of dialogue between two characters in the whole series so a really great Faramir moment there and then number one is Gollum it has to be because going back to that sense of dialogue coming off the page there's no character like Gollum in in fiction he's just such a unique character he's hissing he's repeating himself he's like shouting like ex like mid-sentence he's like Gollum you know and you know he's like at war with himself he's such a dynamic interesting character that is so refreshing to read when he comes up and it's so different than how we've seen him in the hobbit and in the fellowship of the ring it's you're seeing the true golem and he's the fact that tolkien this professor this scholarly type cooked this character up in his brain and wrote that dialogue is so entertaining to me Gollum number one all the way <laughs> so for me number three is going to go to our trio our our man dwarf elf trio of aragorn legolas and Gimli, they not only, you know, did a fantastic job of tracking, they're able to help out the Rohan people and save the day at Helm's Deep and stay alive in all of this slaughter. 
Number two, I'm going to go Sam. I, it's hard to not do Sam, especially in this one where yeah. he really shines and you know, obviously takes on Shelob. We, we already talked about this. This is no surprise. And then number one, I can't believe you guys, like no one's a Gandalf fan. Gandalf totally saved the day here at, at Helm's Deep. He had the plan. He came back from the dead. He saved Theoden. Like he did everything. Where was Gandalf on your guys' list? He was number one for me in Fellowship. He was number one. But I feel like in this book, we had so many new characters that were so interesting that even though uh-huh. Gandalf does all these great deeds, Gandalf's always doing great deeds. So it wasn't like these popping off. He didn't the page have a, he didn't have a, 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 a you shall not pass yeah. line that really kind of uh, set him aside. In yeah, this it's one. hard to top yourself after you took on the Balrog. You know, that was like amazing well, yeah it's like are we going mvp or most improved player here yeah. <laughs> most improved gotta go sam uh-huh. mvp still might be gandalf okay so now we switch gears and go to bottom characters so these guys performed horribly they totally took a big l with everything they tried to do and maybe i'll start us off this time and we can just snake around or whatever order but i'll say number three is it's got to be Saruman. He's, he's got to be on the list here somewhere. I mean, this guy totally got taken out by all of the things that he ignored and thought he was superior to. Number two, Shelob, taken out by a hobbit. We didn't even know what hobbits were, most of the world. So seriously, that, that's embarrassing, Shelob, but a huge loss. And then number one for me, ooh, this is tough. Maybe just like a, a worm tongue. It kind of goes along with Saruman. I'll just kind of throw those three in. You guys decide what order they go in. But he was also, you know, his whole plot here unraveled. And he threw the Palantir out of the window in like a really terrible decision. Like choose like a candlestick or something rather than the most valuable object you have in the tower. Yeah, terrible performance. Yeah, I mean, I can go because I I had a decent amount of overlap there. And I had Wormtongue as my... Look at this guy. What are you doing? <laughs> uh, for the listeners, just change my background to good old worm tongue. Uh, uh-huh. He, yeah, he took a huge L in this one. It's pretty <laughs> brutal. <laughs> I mean, nothing really redeeming going on for him. Just like running from place to place and getting wrecked wherever he goes. <laughs> so, oh, big L for worm tongue. So that was my number one. I'm kind of going out of order here, I guess. I think I, I want to say Sauron, too. Like, you don't really think to be throwing the Dark Lord into this whole thing, but it's like, yeah. did not see the ends coming at all. Like, I think it is still not really understanding the whole Hobbit plan thing. I think mm-hmm. even though it hasn't come to fruition yet, that this is going to be a big problem for Sauron down the road. You kind of see the stage being set here where it's the like seeds you, are missed out. Here, yeah. you missed out on the things you had to have figured out. And I think kind of a funny number three for me, actually, I have a Pippin trying to do a Gollum impression to escape from the orcs. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I know things go better after that, but it's like that was a that was a desperation move. A little embarrassing for Pippin. Didn't work out. Okay, I guess I can go next here. So my number three pick is actually a controversial pick here. It's the ring rates, mostly because I'm so confused with the ring rates. Book one, they're like on the heels of the hobbits. They know the hobbits have the ring and they have them surrounded and they still escape. So they can't overcome hobbits in the first place. The which biggest choke job in the history of fantasy. When they're up there uh, on weather, weather top, weather hill. Uh, weather top, yeah. 
yeah, it's the red light. How how do you lose? There's no excuse race, so. for that. And then in this book, they're like totally they're like, eh, he might have the ring. Let's just go back and not do anything about it for a whole book. We'll just stop looking for them, which was like, what? Didn't they kind of have to regenerate or something after being taken out? Was there some element there of that? There were I, some I elements of that of like they were getting stronger. And by the third book, they're marching at a stronger force. But you really only see the leader of the net of the ring rates come out in those moments. There's like eight other ones. I don't know why one, at least one of them wasn't like, hey, Sauron, um, a hobbit has the ring. You might want to be on the lookout for that. You know, it's like, come on, yeah. big, big report, report back. Yeah, seriously, they're missing out on some big intel of that. I feel like um, Sauron was missing out on. My number two is another odd one is Eomir actually, because you have the trio, and what does Eomir do? But he like points spears at them, and he came very close to actually attacking them. It's like, dude, come on, like. You got to understand what's going on here. And then also he lets Wormtongue in and corrupt his king. It's like, do you not see what's going on here? Is it not obvious to you that Wormtongue is in here performing witchcraft on your king and you're you're just going to take it? You know, I get there's I mean, a sense of being... Wormtongue. I mean, his name, yeah, give me a break. No I guess you, you are honor bound to serve whatever your king says. But at a certain point, it's like when your king goes is being attacked, you got to protect them, so... Huge disappointment there. And then my number one is Saruman. I mean, come on. He he had everything and then he lost it all. And in just just simply by his own hubris, he just thought he had developed the perfect war machine. And I don't think anyone I don't think Gandalf ever was too worried about him. And I'm sure Sauron wasn't worried about him either. And it's just like he got destroyed by trees, man. It's like, come on. He could have. <laughs> all that fire in your forges you could have done some come on don't badmouth my ends <laughs> like that i'm a big end fan <laughs> I, that's fair that's fair so i'm on number one all right josh wrap us up so, so i got the same list as most of you so i'm gonna throw in some curveballs here the first one is gonna be a dark pick but boromir fair it's pretty dark but he'd, he'd, been, he'd been dead by then right like there was there was no hope for him in this one i don't i feel like he could have God no way! I feel like he kind of sacrificed himself after he, after he fell to the ring's influence. He was going like he for that noble death. He's like, I, I gotta redeem myself. So for sake of literary purpose, I need to kill myself. It would have been too awkward to go back and start running with the guys trying to save the hobbits. Yeah, after that. yeah I mean I that's kind of what it felt like to me, though. I'm sure I'm going to get roasted for this on Discord, <laughs> but that's kind of what it felt like. Either way, it was a big L. So <laughs> he's no recovery from that one. The biggest, he died. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's why it's dark. Another really bad performance from the orcs and the orcai. First of all, they had no idea what was going on. They killed each other. They killed each other. Yeah, couldn't hold it together. They wanted to eat them. And they didn't know about the ring. They, they just... Zero discipline. Even at Shelob's Lair, like the troops up there, they can figure stuff out. They're like, oh, yeah, Shelob will take care of it, you know. So just just terrible lackeys. They need a $15 minimum wage to keep them keep them going. <laughs> and then I also had Saruman on my list. And, you know, I think we all had him on our list, but you can't not come have on, him. man. You can't not have him. So I don't have anything to say that hasn't been said. So I'm just going to leave it there. Nice. All right. Well, thanks for listening to our Two Towers 
podcast. This has been fun, guys. Friend talk, friends talking fantasy. If you don't know them yet, check them out wherever you get your podcasts. They have a lot of good content about a, a wide range of things. It sounds like, and um, as Dylan gets more into epic fantasy, I imagine uh, you'll be hitting some some pretty big notes there oh, as yeah. well. So I thanks for thanks for joining. <laughs> I, I'm well read in fantasy. I promise. <laughs> okay, Dylan. Steven likes to think that if you haven't read Wheel of Time, you're not well read in fantasy. <laughs> that's literally like if you go down the top fantasy list, that's like the only one I haven't hit at this point. Dylan, I dealt with this for a good like 10 years of my life, 15 years of my life is <laughs> not fair. being. A, yeah, I can deal with it for I, one night. <laughs> I, I immediately have to apologize. Just as I was starting to talk you guys up and make a. I make a huge mistake and wind up on a bottom three list somewhere. <laughs> bottom three podcasters in the fantasy genre. <laughs> Number one's got to be Steven. Took a big L at the end of this episode. <laughs> but uh, but seriously, check out Friends Talking Fantasy for all of your fantasy book needs. Even consider checking out Phantology for, uh, for some other book needs that you have. And I think between the two of us, we've probably got most things covered. Um, you can check out a, an upcoming Emperor's Soul episode that Ben and Jake from Phantology are going to record with you guys. Hopefully that goes off smoothly. And uh, and, and thanks again for listening, everyone. I uh, look forward to our Return of the King episode eventually when we when we can get to that. There is a lot coming down the pipe. We say this at, at the end of every episode, but we just can't say how excited we are for some of these big releases at the end of the year, especially Rhythm of War. So, uh, so thanks for listening and see everyone next time. See ya. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is fun.